sort and organize sermon series. And uh, I get kind of excited about that, both the putting them together and the studying them and, and all of that. Uh, as you know, it is my, um, my practice to uh, put a series together and live with it for a year to three years, struggling with it myself before I uh, bring it out, which is always frustrating because you're really excited about something when you first think of it. But it's not unusual for me to think that I've got a great sermon series, and then when I try to start actually looking at the text and reading uh, that and practicing it, I find out it's not quite as good as I thought it was. Uh, but I thought of one uh, this week that it was really hard, really hard not to just say, I'm going to at least do an intro to it. And then I thought better of that. Particularly because I've been uh, particularly interested as I, as I look at the um, readings in Judaism and, and Eastern and Western Christianity. Um, those lectionary readings, um, uh, because I'm preparing ahead of time, I'm probably ahead on looking at where we're going, uh, and so I begin to anticipate things. This particular week, the lecture, lectionary readings are really profound and significant, and the passages offer a reason for the people of God, Israel, and those of us called from the nations, to gather together. And I want to look at these passages together so that we can uh, remind ourselves of why we gather together, not just in the sense of the congregation uh, on uh, Shabbat or Sunday, but uh, the, con- the gathering in each other's homes and seeing each other at work and those, those kind of things, when we gather as the people of God. The passage that uh, leads this off, and I'm going to look at most of the passages that are found in this week. So hopefully as you're reading through them this week, you'll be reinforced in this context. Begins with Nehemiah uh, chapter 8. I don't know why, but every time I think of the book of Nehemiah, I think of Nesbitt's soft drinks. And I'm not sure what that's about. Uh, I think that it may be that I couldn't pronounce Nehemiah when I was young and uh, it sounded like Nesbitt's to me, or it's just one of those very strange things that happens inside my head. Be glad you're not me. Um, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, uh, is uh, a passage that I have always been uh, uh, fascinated by. And while it's just an event that takes place, it is a foundational event uh, for everything that we do when we gather together. The scripture says all the people gathered in as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. This is not the water gate of our history, but it's the gate where they would go to get water. Uh, And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel, to bring the Torah. Bring that Torah and let us gather together around that. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So we know this is Rosh Hashanah, it's Yom Terah, when they are doing this. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, a general time when we tend to gather as well. 
um, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for that purpose. Uh, this is the first mention of any kind of a pulpit like this where uh, this is done. Uh, and then it mentions, and I'm not going to read all the names, but there are, there are 13 men who are with him from each of the tribes um, standing on his left and on his right. You can see the structure here. Ezra opened the scroll in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. He was on a, a, a bima, a, a, a risen area. Uh, and uh, when he opened it, all the people stood up, as we just did, as we brought them uh, out of the ark. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, that blessing that we do as we uh, bring that out. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And lifted up their hands and they bowed low and worshipped the Lord uh, with their faces to the ground. Uh, so what we have then is a group of people who are going, they don't have uh, microphones. A group of people, as the text is read, are going to then also explain the text. Uh, it says they read from the book, the law of God, translating it, really explaining it, to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now what they did was they read it in Hebrew and then they explained it to the people in Aramaic. And this becomes the basis of what are called the Targums, which are really Aramaic commentaries on it. So you read the text and then you explain the text. Sound familiar? That's what we do in homilies. That's what we do in sermons. That's what's done. This is one of the, the gatherings um, of the people of God to gather around the word. Now, you and I have Bibles in our hands. We could just read the Bible ourselves. But there is something about gathering together and reading the text. And in the synagogues and in the churches around the world, uh, this weekend and all going all the way back to the time of Ezra, the people of God gather, the scriptures are read, and they are explained for the purpose of the community to be aware of God's, God's Word. This process doesn't start with Ezra. It really goes back to Moses and Joshua. So I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter 8. Just for a moment. Joshua chapter 8, beginning at verse 30. says, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man uh, had yielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, sacrificial peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, these Ten Commandments, which he had written in, uh, in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger as well as the native, there were Gentiles then uh, part, as part of this, 
Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. This, you know, we're, that's where this idea of sitting on uh, the sides comes from, in part. Then afterwards he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. I want to point something out here that I think is important. If you, uh, when I was a, uh, a kid in school, we had to diagram sentences. Any of you ever diagram sentences? Uh, by diagramming the sentence, you began to understand what it is. I'm pretty sure they don't diagram sentences anymore because when uh, students come to me, often they will pick a word out of a, out of a sentence and that word now dictates the, what the sentence means instead of the sentence dictates what the word means. It's a fascinating reverse that, that happens um, in, in our current education system. Um, but if you analyze verse 35, you'll notice that he read this before the assembly of Israel. And then it says, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. So if you eliminate the strangers who were living among them, and you eliminate the children, and you eliminate the women, who's the, who's the um, assembly of Israel? The men. There is a biblical male responsibility that has really been lost in our culture. And I am becoming more and more aware that the health of a household depends on the father. That the health of a congregation depends on the men. Because what I notice is the women are willing and ready to serve the Lord. And the men have to have a sense of responsibility. Uh, they have a tendency to back off and let the women do it. And the women will do it because they're not going to let it not be done. But the reality is the leadership of the household and of the congregation should be committed men. I'm not saying women shouldn't be involved. I'm saying that the danger is a congregation or a household where the man is there, but he is no different than the children in terms of that context. just found that fascinating when I was reading that passage. So, the men gather with the women and the children and the Gentiles who dwell among them, and all the texts of the scriptures are read. So, one reason we gather is to hear the word of God together and to be instructed in how to understand and do the word. And again, one of the things that's really important is when you read the Bible, you should read it out loud. Silent reading is not good for remembering. If you want to remember something, you read it out loud because then you're looking at it, you're saying it, and you're hearing it, and the reinforcement is much more powerful. Silent reading doesn't do that, plus all your thoughts get in the middle of that, uh, and that's chaotic. Okay, So that's one of the purposes 
of gathering together. The second one is found in, uh, uh, well, before I get to that, let me uh, say that uh, this continues even in the life and ministry of our Lord. Luke chapter 4, another one of the readings for this week. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 to 21, gives us a little insight into the uh, life and ministry of Jesus in the context of the synagogues uh, at the time that Jesus was there. Um, When Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread throughout the sounding districts, He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Now, we don't think much about that. We just think, oh, Jesus went and taught in the synagogue. You don't just walk into a synagogue and teach. If you are not a fully observant Jew, according to the commandments of Moses, well-versed in the teachings of the rabbis and the sages, you don't just walk into a synagogue and, and teach. So, Jesus was recognized as a pious Jew an observant Jew, a Torah-based prophet-understanding Jew who would be able to teach in the synagogues. And when he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now, we have people stand up and read. This making an aliyah, coming up and reading the scriptures is a standard practice in Uh, the synagogues, and in the churches historically. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, they didn't have chapters, and they didn't have verses. And the scroll of Isaiah is almost as big as this Torah that we have, if you've ever seen it. And he opened that thing right to the place where the Haftorah reading was for that day in the synagogue. Which means he's very familiar with the liturgy and with the context of what's going on. He's not just opening a little codex book and going, you know, chapter 60, right? So he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim this favorable year of the Lord. He closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This is where we don't do it right. Traditionally, in a synagogue... You would all be standing, and I'd be sitting. Okay? And that would be cool. Uh, uh, (laughs) Jesus would sit in the boat, and the people would stand on the thing. They would stand to hear the Word of God. We stand, when we stand, because of the readings and the presenting ourselves, we are connecting to these liturgical uh, practices that have been done down through history. So, we must not move away from the constant reading and explaining and doing of the Word. It is our guide to life, our lamp to our feet and our light to our path. Our way of life is to be thoroughly comprehended by the Scriptures. Not a head knowledge, 
but in experiential knowledge based on doing them. And this is why we read and recommend the reading of the weekly readings and why our services have readings and sermons that explain those readings. Now there is another reason that we gather together and that's found also in the reading for this week which is Psalm 113. Psalm 113 has nine verses in it. I'm always fascinated that these historical readings are clustered together. Not just, they just, well, let's take this one and this one. There's a couple. They really thought through the connections. And and the readings this week are really about uh, the Word of God and the gathering of God and, and the praise of God, which is what this one is about. 113, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above all heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Now, one of the reasons that we gather is to praise God, to give testimony. That's why we have testimony time. It's important that we praise the Lord. It's not just important that we sing the hymns of praise. That's good. It's not just important that we read the psalms of praise. That's good. But we add our voices to the praise of God when we give testimony. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Look at uh, Psalm 111, just back a little bit. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are your work, are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is His work and His righteousness endures forever. He has made His wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear Him. He will remember His covenant forever. He has made known his, to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of His hands are truth and justice. All His precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. And He has, rede- he has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. We gather not only to hear God's Word, but to say God's Word works. We have heard it. We have done it. He has fulfilled it. And we share that as a congregation. It's part of what we do. And it's great. I think it's great that the children are participating in that. Okay? Now, parents, you want to work with them. Okay? But it's great, great, great that they want to say, I'm thankful to God for something in the assembly of the upright, in the congregation of the people of God. That is a fantastic thing. 
Now, another reason then that we gather is not just to be around the word, but to pray and praise the Lord. And we generally call that worship. But those aren't the only two reasons that a congregation gathers and people gather together. We gather around the word. We gather around the request and the praise of God. But we also gather because we have a particular function that we are to participate. One of the other readings for this week is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now you'll say, 1 Corinthians 12, I know that chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit you are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And the foot cannot say, because I am not the hand, I am not a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not the eye, I am not part of the body, it's not really not part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they are all one member, where would the body be? But now they are all members but one body. Now, I could go on with this, but you know the text. One of the reasons that we gather is because I will never be complete in Christ independent of you. Not going to happen. There is a danger in this culture of thinking that I have a relationship with God and I grow in grace and in knowledge and I outgrow other people. You will never outgrow other people. You will never outgrow the body. We are the body of Christ and that body doesn't function completely when parts are missing. And I know a lot of people think they're the appendix and therefore they can be removed and it doesn't matter but there is a ministry, there is a gift, there are resources in every member of this body, and we are without them when they don't gather with us. I don't mean just on Sunday, I mean generally. That ministry that we have to each other, and you guys could probably all give testimony to how someone in the Disciple Center or in another congregation that you're connected to or other believers that you're connected to were able to minister to you or you to minister to them, as was mentioned earlier, and you begin to have a sense that we are members one of another. We gather because a body has to be together or it can't function. Okay? Many, many Christians are following the Mr. Potato Head approach to body life. Their part is laying over on the shelf. Okay? I couldn't think of a better example, so I'm sorry. All right? The reality, you'll remember that one. Okay? So when you see somebody who is not interacting with the body, say, Hey, Mr. Potato Head. Right? Something, we need you and you need us. We Sometimes ministering to people helps them to 
respond then and minister to. I'm not talking about guilting people. I'm talking about recognizing that we are in need of one another. We need each other. Uh, And the danger is to think that we're self-sufficient in Christ when the truth is we are in Christ and He is sufficient in us. But it takes all of us. It's a plural. So this, we're members of his body and members of one another. This Christian walk is not an isolated walk. We are to walk together. We need each other because God has taken his gifts, his resources, and distributed them to each of us so that we need each other. Uh, This faith is relational. This faith is communal. And that's true of family and it's true of congregation. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, the scripture talks about uh, the outcome of this. And he says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one have a psalm, have a teaching, have a revelation, have a tongue, have an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edification. One of the reasons for our testimony time. One of the reasons for our prayer time. One of the reasons for everybody having an opportunity to read and open the ark and do that. Is to begin to get us comfortable with interacting uh, as a community. Now it has to go beyond the congregation. The bulk of the function of the body of Christ is not at the worship service. The worship service is... you. I can't think of a better example. I'll use this. You guys all have cell phones. What happens if you uh, use your cell phone a lot and you don't plug it in? You lose your ability to use the cell phone. You don't plug into the Lord individually. We plug into the Lord together. Where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. The idea is that when we gather, the Lord is with us and there is a motivation and a strengthening and a reinforcement, a charging of our batteries, if you will, so that we can then go out and minister and interact. We don't just come here and get charged and say, okay, turn the phone off and just retain the charge. We're supposed to, to use that in ministry to one another. And we do that in our workplace. We do that in our homes. We do that in various places. So... We gather here and elsewhere in our lives to be members of one another and as such members of his body. Which now moves us to the next thing that we do when we gather. And that's found also in our readings for this week is amazing. The four primary functions of our gathering are put together in the readings. We talked about the congregation is a house of prayer. It's a house of discipleship, it's a house of fellowship, and it's a house of judgment or reconciliation, right? We've done the three, well, there are reconciliations in here as well. Exodus chapter 18. Another one of those passages that uh, I am somewhat enamored with, uh, still trying to work through how God is working with Moses, and, and you would think, Well, God's talking directly to Moses. Moses doesn't need any help. Okay? And the truth is, Moses' father-in-law is going to have to take him to task. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, verse 1 of 18. 
heard of all that God was doing for Moses and for Israel as people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, uh, which he had sent away, and her two sons, with whom was named uh, one was named Gershon, uh, and the other was named Eleazar, uh, based on his experience with God. So he comes to Moses, and when he gets to Moses, Moses is standing in front of a tent where the Ark of the Covenant is. And there's a line of people that, you know, looks ridiculous. Just packed. And Moses would hear this person talk. He'd go in to the Lord and talk to the Lord. He'd come out and say, okay, here's what you do. Two people are fighting. Which one of us is right? You are. Right? I mean, this is what he's doing. And Jethro is watching this thing. And Jethro says, what are you doing? And he says, well, the people come to inquire of the Lord. I go in and talk to the Lord. I come out and I make judgments between a man and his brother. And this is how you do this. And this is what the Lord wants us to do here. And, and Jethro says, this is not good, man. Can you imagine telling Moses, you're not doing the right thing? Only a father-in-law could do that, right? So, so, so I've been taking care of your wife and two kids. You know, What are you doing out here in the middle of the desert? Right? So what he says is, you're going to wear yourself out and you're wearing them out. I mean... Standing in line is not a great thing. It's not a productive day when you spend... It's like the DMV, you know? So, so he says, here's what you do. Now, ask the Lord. Check this. But I think what you should do is you should get the basic uh, text of what God said. And you need to find some faithful men. And you need to make them heads of ten and fifty and hundreds and thousands. And you're going to teach them... And they're going to judge and teach the people. And if there's a problem that they can't figure out that's beyond that, then they're going to come to you and then you're going to go to the Lord and that will do it. Brilliant. And ultimately, God says to Moses, that's exactly what we're going to do. Now, it's interesting. Some people are only in charge of ten people. Some people are in charge of a thousand. If you're an American, your thought is, ooh, the guy who's in charge of the thousand is the guy who's got the most power, right? Or authority. No. A person who's got a thousand people has a lot of people who are doing just fine because you can't handle a thousand intensive care cases, right? But if any of you have ever worked with people, and just about everybody in here has, you know that there are low-maintenance people and there are high-maintenance people, right? High-maintenance people, you can't have a lot of those in your family or in your congregation or in your work without going, what did I do to deserve this, right? <laughs> so the 10 people are the high-maintenance people, and you might need them to be the, the more developed people, right? So we have two levels of uh, seriousness in this context. One is the level towards Moses, who, who has the most maturity and access to God. And he is working with the leadership. And the leadership are working with the people on the basis of the needs of the group that's there that's organized into these various groups. 
And ultimately, that is what, what they do. The gathering of people around the Word of God and the praise of God and the community means that there are going to be problems. And there are going to be questions. Those problems and questions need solutions and answers. Moses becomes overwhelmed in the task. His father-in-law helped him see a system that would be both systematic and developmental. Moses teaching the leaders and judging them, and the leaders teaching and judging the people in various group sizings. This is found in the relationship of the families of the congregations. So in some sense, we have to think about that too. Where are the populations within our congregation that need the most help? Where are the ones that have the greatest ability to help? And organizing that relationally, relationally, not assigning it, relationally in a way that allows the body to function in that, in that way. So we gather together to reconcile and solve problems within our community and families according to the word and the spirit of the Lord. Let me just be really personal for a second. I, I believe that the thing that has been the most effective in my ministry in some close to 40 years of ministry was when I began to do sessions of Q&A. What we do after the service, the Wednesday Q&As I did for so long, I do Q&A at the university in Wanda's with, with students. I've begun to do more of them in the classes. I leave a little time at the end for Q&A. If there are no questions, that's okay. I don't worry about that. But if there are, what I find is, if questions don't get answered, if problems don't get addressed, they fester. And they fester and one of two things happen. They explode, that's never good. Or people just shut down, which is also not good. So I believe that this kind of discussion interaction that we do with each other is really an important part of that reconciliation ministry uh, that's part of this. So... We gather to reconcile and solve problems within our community and families according to the word and the spirit of the Lord. Well, there, there was one other passage, which interestingly enough is the Haftorah passage for this week. In Isaiah chapter 6. And it, in some sense, uh, is related to the motive of our gathering. So why do we gather? We, we know what the functioning of our gathering is. But what's the motivation to actually gather? And I think it's found in this text. And in the, the last text of the readings uh, from the Newer Testament. Uh, that I will mention in a minute. In Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1 to 7. A familiar passage you, you all know well. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out. And the temple was filled with smoke. That 
Shekinah glory of God. Now, you can see this picture because we have a little bit of that image up here. Uh, the book of Revelation shows this scene of God. God high and lifted up on the throne and the, the seven lamps before the Lord and around there are the seraphim and the cherubim. You know, I, I've always thought it would be great to have a seraphim right here in this corner and one right there in that corner, you know, you know kind of thing to get the image. He sees God in his exaltation. And Isaiah, as you know, says, hey God, how's it going? Oh, that's right. Isaiah's not an American Christian. Isaiah says, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm in trouble. The glory and the holiness and the majesty of the Lord. And I'm a worm. I'm nothing. I'm a sinner among sinners. Right? What can I do? He can't do a thing. And one of the seraphim, it says, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. I love the King James here. Woe is me, for I am undone. And the seraph comes and takes the coal, touches him and says, You're fixed now. Right? Like when I was a kid, we'd play cops and robbers and they'd shoot us. And we count to a hundred and then we were well again, right? Uh, boom, you're, you're there. Then comes the voice of the Lord. Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I'll go. Why do you think Isaiah is willing to go? Because God has forgiven him. God, he's not going, hey, I'm important. Let me go. You, you came to me to take away my sin. What do you need done? And God says, you're going to go talk to these people. They're going to see but not understand. They're going to hear but not listen. Well, how long do I put up with that? Until it's over. The only motivation for that is that you understand the extent and level of your sin. Now, thank God that the people of Israel in part See, but don't understand. And hear, but don't comprehend. Because what he's going to do is provide for them, not just Isaiah, but for all of them, this salvation. And so turn to chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. In the context of this, he says that even in the, the, the uh, area of the Gentiles area, that northern part, which is where Nazareth and all that is, uh, the people will see a great light. And in 6 it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and his government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, 
Prince of Peace, there will be no end of the increase of, of his government or his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Israel, just as I cleansed Isaiah, the people that he dwells among, will also be cleansed by this child who will be given, this son of David who will be the King Messiah. And that message not only comes to Israel, but comes to you and me. We who were without God and without hope. They were with God and with hope in a sinful condition. We... We're without God and without hope in a sinful condition. We're of all men the least. So what does Paul say in our last text? 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 15. Now, you think of Isaiah. Isaiah is, Isaiah and Jeremiah, these, these guys are out there ministering in the midst of people who won't listen. Okay? Well, there's a New Testament guy who's got the same problem. His name is Paul, right? He's in trouble on both sides with, whatever there's a problem, blame it on Paul, right? So what does Paul say? Verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Messiah Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul says the grace of God came to me, the worst of the sinners, the chief of the sinners, and I labored harder than all of them. But it wasn't me laboring, it was the grace of God that came this far to to reach me. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Boy, did God have to have some patience. Paul's killing people in the name of God who are following Jesus, right? I mean, he's imprisoning them. He's after them. And God is still going to come to him with mercy and grace so that we can say, how far have you gone? You haven't gone as far as Paul. I used to say, when I'd read this verse, Paul was the chief of sinners. I say, well, that was for then. We have a new, there's a new chief in town. And you're looking at him, okay? I think that most of us, when we look on our sin, think that our sin separates us from any possibility of acceptance by God. But acceptance by God is not a matter of sin. It's a matter of grace. But when you know that, when you like Isaiah say, I am unclean, and I dwell with people who are unclean. When you like Paul say, I'm the foremost of the sinners, you realize that God has done an incredible thing in saying, I will save you. I will raise you from the dead. I will make you my child for all eternity. That will motivate you to gather with others. 
and to rejoice in what the Lord has done. So the good news is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, from the chief to the least of sinners, from Israel and from the nations. And just as he is patient with Israel and with us, one day all Israel will be saved, and we with them will be manifest as the Lord's people. Until then, we gather in our homes, our congregations, our workplaces, and all areas of our lives to hear and do the Word of God, to pray and praise the Lord, to function as the body of the Lord on this earth, and to solve the problems of our community of faith and reconcile, maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. And what else can you say than what Paul says in this last verse, verse 17? Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.